Hey, BA fam, this episode is sponsored by State Farm. Are you a small business owner looking for insurance that fits your needs and budget? Look no further than State Farm. State Farm agents are not just insurance providers. They're also small business owners who live and work right here in your community. They understand the unique challenges of running and protecting a small business. When it comes to small business insurance, State Farm knows what it takes. Create a plan that fits your needs and your budget. State Farm agents are ready to help you choose personalized policies that truly understand your business. Ensure your small business with a fellow small business owner. Talk to a State Farm agent today and get started on personalized small business insurance that fits your needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. my fancy version of our hey 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 brown ambition hey mandy hi hey hi <laughs> uh, so what's new uh oh too much to even go i'm just exhausted um nothing just some personal stuff that you know i can't be telling all the listeners because y'all be knowing everything <laughs> oh, okay <laughs> there's things people will bring up that i said on the show and i'm like what when did i say that and why i know, I know. So I'm like, yeah, I'm going to keep that. Oh, well, I mean, aside from, um, you know, me personally, but I was like, did you see Mary J. Blige that she's going to be paying um, Ken Do, her her ex-husband, $300,000 a month in spousal support, at least for now? Is it three hundred? I thought it was like 30000 30000 Meanwhile, me and my extra zero. What? Oh, damn. That's a <laughs> big difference. I know. Oh, okay. I know. I didn't even know Mary J. Blige. So I had, I think we all like were watching the interview she was giving and like just the shade she was throwing. Not only is her album like the middle finger to whoever this guy is, but like all those like shady interviews she was giving, like really just like laying it out like he did her wrong and now he's trying to take her money. And I'm just saying, Holla, we want prenup if you're a breadwinner. But I, I, you know, fat hypocrite. I did not, I don't want (laughs) to. I I heard she had one. That's why I'm so confused. I well, it must have not been updated, or I don't know. It depends on where they got married. I mean, some heard that too. Some states. Um, I think what it was is that no. I mean, I think that they probably live in a communal property state, and whatever she earned while she was with him becomes half his. Regardless. Um. Regardless. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. Maybe she did have a prenup, but it doesn't sound like it. I don't. You know. I read somewhere that it was that, that she had a prenup. This They're still working through it. But that because she initiated a divorce, I don't know if that was in the prenup that, I don't know. You know what I mean? That is just, it just seems so crazy. He wanted $130,000 a month. I'm like, yo, who? It just <laughs> makes you just do a certain lifestyle. What? Don't you feel some sort of way? Like, yeah. Ugh. I just feel bad, but I mean, hopefully that, you know, once the, the proceedings compl- are complete, you know, that, I don't know. I mean, I guess it's- are messy. It is. I mean, I was in a divorce between two people who didn't even have money. <laughs> like, <laughs> and it's messy then, right? <laughs> and it was still really messy. And shout out to the, the Brown Ambitioner listener who, I was cleaning out our inbox. She sent me an email back in April. Uh, I'm not going to 
put her name out there, but she emailed to say how happy she was for me. And oh, yeah, I got married in Savannah, too. Now I ended up getting divorced, but <laughs> I'm sure wow. you're like, oh, thank you. Okay. She's like, but we all we still talk about how great the party was. <laughs> the party <laughs> oh, my gosh. Well, cool. Thank you for that. Um, yeah, it's it's nasty. And I think I mean, it's it's hard to go into a union which requires such a level of like optimism to get married today and then um yeah it, it feels like unnatural to think about like a prenup and worst case scenario and whatnot but um yeah this is kind of what happens when you don't protect yourself 100 percent. and she's like a millionaire it always kills you when like the really successful woman um you know don't protect themselves i guess her lawyers like weren't on her side or you know, or maybe didn't, maybe well, she didn't even want it to be that, you know, strict. Maybe she didn't, maybe she was just too la 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 in love and kind of let something slip by. <sighs> so this was, um, segueing from entertainment. Did you, I wanted to talk real quick cause I feel like people probably are wondering last week, uh, while, you know, the Comey testimony was happening yes. on Thursday. Um, God, was that only last week? It feels like time is just going like it's it's going so slow it feels like or, or fast I can't figure it out but anyway pretty sure it was last week the same day that was all happening the house just let slip by this little thing called the financial choice act and I wanted to talk about it because it's past the house and people really didn't think it would huh back here mm -hmm. again um but basically I don't know if you guys or well I'll just talk to you because you know you're the only one here <laughs> <laughs> But the Financial Choice Act essentially takes the teeth out of the Dodd-Frank Act. And the Dodd-Frank Act did a lot of things. But the biggest thing it did, it was put in place after the recession, you know, after the banks crashed and we bailed them out and the housing crisis. And it tightened regulations on lenders. And it's part of the reason why, good, and, good for better or for worse, it's been harder to get approved for mortgages, loans, new credit, small business loans, all that kind of stuff. Okay. Um, because it forced lenders to, you know have some underwriting and actually vet people that they are issuing loans to. Because if you recall, their housing crisis was caused by a lot of people with not great credit or mm -hmm. not good income getting houses they couldn't afford. And it all, yeah. uh, you know how it all ended. So this act, the Financial Choice Act, would um, – Relieve some of those re relieve some of those restrictions on lenders, freeing up lending to people, um, and at the same time, it also takes the teeth out of the my beloved Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, mm. um, my beloved Richard Cordray. He doesn't know, but I'm a huge stan. So the CFPB was created as part or alongside the Dodd Frank, and the CFPB has done like amazing things it has i don't know if you remember that wells fargo scandal from earlier this year yeah, or sorry last course. year in the fall mm -hmm. when it was found that they had opened millions millions of unnecessary unasked for accounts um, including credit card accounts just to like drive up the sales number and like thousands of people were fired and um wells fargo is just getting dragged um, through the mud and still is trying to recover from that. So the CFPB is the one who took them to task and fined them um, big time and actually did something about that. So that's just one example of what the CFPB does. And basically this the, the Financial Choice Act would make it possible. So as it stands, the director is appointed by the president and he – the president doesn't have a lot of power in like firing the, the director of the CFPB. 
Um, and one of the biggest things Trump had talked about and Republicans in general was like changing it so that they could fire the director at will and wow. instill someone who, you know, probably has more uh, probably is more favorable to big business and will deregulate or remove some of these regulations. I mean, the CFPB's job is issuing regulations against um, financial institutions or consumer facing institutions. So the fact that you could potentially with this act, if it passes the next step, which is through the Senate, that they could remove the head of the CFPB, install someone who will just, you know, rip everything to shreds. It's, it's scary to me because, um, I mean, there's other consumer organizations or agencies out there that are meant to protect consumers, but the CFPB was just, it was new and it was fresh and they were badass and they were mm. really taking these firms to task. Um, so that happened. So I wanted to bring that to everyone's attention and just tell you if this sounds like something that you don't want, I mean, go read up on it yourself if you want like the fuller picture. I just gave you like the the super quick take on it, read up on it and just send your, send your elected officials a little note. We all know how to do that. Just like Google your elected officials, like send the little, you know, the, the, they even have those easy to fill out like pre-filled like messages now and just tell them maybe you're a fan of things like regulations. Regulations, exactly. Um, if that sounds good to you, because this, the whole, all of this was that was built to protect consumers after the financial crisis um, is sort of in jeopardy. All Debbie Downers aside, um, the fate of our, like, America aside, we have a really exciting guest tonight. We do. I'm One of to, our faves. I'm about to buzz her in. She just pinged me. Um, yes. So we are bringing Miss Lynette Calfani Fox, Cox back. Calfani Cox. We had her. She was like one of our. Was she our, our first, first guest? I I really think she was. That's amazing. So Lynette's back on the show. Um, you guys, um, if you don't know Lynette Calfani Cox, uh, where have you been? I know. Um, she's like one of the sweetest nicest human beings on the planet but she's also a money expert in her own right um she was a long time oh go ahead i was gonna say she's like like all the the stuff that me mandy patrice tanya marcia like all of these money girls that you love so dearly she is the the fairy godmother to all of us like she set the stage for all that we're doing and continues to help us like as we work through this journey of like being financial educators. So Lynette is the truth. Absolutely. And if you don't know, her website is askthemoneycoach.com. Lynette is a multi hyphenate, but she has all sorts of books. She's sort of an expert in saving up for college and um, has great tips for parents trying to manage the cost of college and, um, and, and all that comes with it and retirement. And every Monday she does a live Facebook chat. So you should go follow her on Facebook, Lynette Calfani Cox, check out her Monday money talks. Did I mess that up? I think that's what she calls them. Um, I'll clear it up when we get on the phone. (laughs) Um, but we're so excited. So today I asked Lynette to come on. I think last time we talked about, I forget what we talked about, but this time I wanted her to come on and talk about a subject near and dear to I think both of our hearts, uh, which is negotiating and like how to ask for more at the office and or wherever you are in your career. This is a question that we get lots and lots and lots from you guys. So um, stick around. Lynette Calfani Cox is coming up. Hey, BA fam. This episode is sponsored by State Farm. 
Are you a small business owner looking for insurance that fits your needs and budget? Look no further than State Farm. State Farm agents are not just insurance providers. They're also small business owners who live and work right here in your community. They understand the unique challenges of running and protecting a small business. When it comes to small business insurance, State Farm knows what it takes. Create a plan that fits your needs and your budget. State Farm agents are ready to help you choose personalized policies that truly understand your business. Ensure your small business with a fellow small business owner. Talk to a State Farm agent today and get started on personalized small business insurance that fits your needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. Lynette Kalfani Cox, she was our very first um, interview, and she's back. So we're super excited because Lynette's going to talk about all things negotiating. We're also going to squeeze some college tips and info because Lynette got her daughter a um, help to her daughter get not only a free ride, but tons of money for college. So if you want to be like that, you know, get on board. Take a listen. Jamal, you listening? Good. All right. So Jamal is who we call our, um, we have a few handful of male listeners and that's what we yep. call them. <laughs> yep. <laughs> I know. They tune out for the girl stuff, but back in. Yeah, back in, yeah. But no, I think that this topic, think, and thank you, Lynette, for joining us again. You are a fave. Um, so this is a topic I'll never get tired of talking about. But, and I always like to get your perspective, like each person we talk to, their perspective on this. Because um, we still get a lot of questions about, you know, what are some strategies? How should I be asking for more at work? What do I do if I feel stuck at work and I don't feel like I'm getting paid enough and the, you know, opportunities for growth just aren't there? Um, and I wonder if you maybe you could start off by talking a little bit about sometimes early in your career or even recently when you feel like um, you either have, have missed an opportunity to negotiate or took advantage of one and like what you learned from that? Sure. Well, over the course of my career, I've been super lucky in the sense that um, I don't even know how or like why I chose to like negotiate so early in my career. Because honestly, I don't ever remember um, my mom telling me, um, I don't remember any female mentors or older women telling me to negotiate. I have um, five sisters. Three of them are older than I am. But honestly, I don't remember them telling me to negotiate um, early in my career. I just kind of took it upon myself to do it. And I am so enormously grateful that I did because it really has um, been kind of one of those benchmark um, areas in terms of my own financial uh, life, not just as an employee, but even now as an entrepreneur. And so um, there have been times when I have not negotiated. And it's usually when I get an offer that's like excellent, (laughs) sort of right out the box. And I'm like, all right, don't be greedy, girl. You know, (laughs) but how do you know when it's, Um, when it's good enough? Um, someone, yeah. One of my younger, uh, cousins had asked me that she's like, I don't know. I'm really excited, but I don't know if, should I just negotiate because everyone tells me to, or how do I know if, if it's good enough? See, that's a great question. And you, you really should know, quote unquote, what's good enough for you. So I'll give you a case in point since you asked about my early, um, professional uh, career, my history then. Um, the reason I say you should know is you should know like 
what amount of money would make you happy and what amount of money is commensurate with the skills and the background and the value that you're going to bring to an organization. So, for example, um, when I got out of grad school at USC um, in Los Angeles, it was 1993. And um, I had gotten married very young and then I moved to uh, Philadelphia. My ex was in graduate school. And so I was working uh, not one, but two jobs. So I worked at the Philadelphia Inquirer as a correspondent by day, and I worked at Fox, the 10 o'clock news by night. And I was a, a writer and an assistant producer at Fox. So um, for both of my jobs, literally, I was you know working myself to the bone. Um, I would be at the the Inky, as we called it, for you know from about nine o'clock in the morning to about five thirty, almost six. And then I would race like a mad woman across the bridge and come back in because I worked in South Jersey um, and in the Cherry Hill Bureau for the Inquirer. And then I would rush to come back over to downtown uh, Philly area. And then I would go to my job at the 10 o'clock news. And I would get there about 630-ish and be there until 11, till the show ended. Long story short, when I changed uh, and left those two jobs to go work for Dow Jones, um, Dow Jones, you know, the parent company of the Wall Street Journal, um, the job offer that I got from Dow Jones was more than I was making for both of those previous two jobs put together, but I still negotiated for more. So I knew at the time that um, not only was I going to have one heck of a commute because I was commuting on Amtrak from Philadelphia, from 30th Street Penn Station to New York now to go to um, the World Financial Center, which is where the headquarters for Dow Jones was. I knew that that was going to be two hours, you know, door to door commute each way. I knew I was going to have like a 400 or something dollar round trip Amtrak ticket and everything. But I also knew, and again, I don't even know how I knew this, but I knew that it was incumbent upon me to show my prospective employer what great things I was going to do for Dow Jones and how I was going to deliver value for them and why I was worth X amount. And at the time, it might have been like, you know, 48000 or 50000 I can't remember exactly what it was, to be honest with you. Um, but it was more for sure than I was making at those two jobs combined. I want to say it was in the high 40s or something like that. And um, another thing that dawned on me was that it's not the employer's, you know, responsibility or even concern, frankly, to worry about the fact that I had a four hour commute, you know, to and from when you took two hours each way or that my Amtrak ticket was, you know, 400 and something dollars at the time. I negotiated from a position of strength, not from a position of need or greed. And I think that's one of the biggest mistakes that people make when they say, well, I don't know if this is a good amount. How much should I ask for, et cetera? you have to think about the value that you're going to give to a company and what is that worth? And also what is the dollar amount that you'd be happy with? So um, somebody can tell you, oh, you should negotiate for more. But if, if you say, hey, I'm looking for a job and, you know, to get this new position, wow, if they made me an offer of, you know, $75,000 a year, 
woohoo, I'd be jumping through the, you know, jumping up and down for joy. And if they come through with, say, an $80,000 offer and you're like, woohoo, I'm over the moon. Um, do you need to negotiate? No, you don't need to. Obviously, you'd be happy or satisfied. Um, perhaps you might want the experience of negotiating and that can actually be helpful and beneficial. And yeah, you might actually get more. But it's not a situation where it's a it's a a matter that has to be forced where you wouldn't be happy and truly incentivized and motivated to do a very very good job. Uh, so any... go ahead, I'm sorry, Mandy. Nope. Actually, Tiff, did you move locations? No, I'm in the same space. Oh, okay. It's just really echoey. But yeah, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, well, how do you so my little sister just called me the other day. She had a job interview and it was um, strange in that um, her employer is based in London. And um, so they were asking, you know, they want basically her, I guess, to pay her health insurance out of pocket, but they wanted to include that into her income. So she was asking me like, well, how do I know, you know, um, health insurance as well as her, um, her retirement package. So she was asking about how do I negotiate that part of my, my salary. Cause you know, she never had to do that before. Cause usually it comes with the company figuring sure. out the dollar amount. So what is something that somebody that she could, I mean, she's already since I told her to go to like, um, policy genius to see how much insurance would cost that she was going to be paying out of pocket. But like, what are some tips that someone who has to figure out, okay, this company's not giving me health insurance or a retirement package? How, how can you incorporate that into negotiating for how much you want as far as your salary? So, Great question. And it's a, definitely an atypical situation tip that your sister is dealing with. Mm -hmm. Usually it's the other way around. Usually it's a company trying to perhaps um, give a, a lower um, cash portion of the compensation. And they're trying to say, but look at all these other benefits and perks. You know, we're going to take care of your health insurance. We're going to give you retirement benefits or profit sharing or stock options or whatever. So um, what you advise her to do is actually was smart counsel, which is you need to understand exactly how much you would have to pay independently on your own for those types of things. In general, though, regardless of which way it goes, if you have to pay it or if the employer is, is, is covering those things for you, um, one of the things that I, I teach people, and you, you guys know that I have a, a course now called The Art of Negotiating for Women uh, on Money Coach University, I talk about valuing other variables. And it's so mm. important to do this. Because um, for the most part, when you think about your pay, it's not just about the cash dollars that the employer is going to give to you, you know, every two weeks or whatever. All of those other variables, all of those other benefits, those are real life dollars because otherwise it would be out of pocket costs for you. So you need to say, how much holiday pay am I going to get? How much extra or anticipated vacation pay? Um, will this employer be providing me and how much negotiating room is there for that? It's always negotiable. Everything is negotiable. Will they be willing to pay off my student loans, for example, all or a portion of the student loans? Um, uh, will they provide me with flexible work schedules? Um, you know, what is that worth to me? Um, when I was leaving, when I was at the tail end of my employment as a Wall Street Journal reporter for CNBC, one of the things that I negotiated at the end of my contract there, I had a very nice six-figure salary, but I was in the process of writing my first book. 
And long story short, we we were at an impasse. And I had an agent who was negotiating for me um, a, a very high profile um, uh, uh, TV and book agent, a guy named Bob Barnett. But long story short, we were at an impasse. And um, at that point, I negotiated directly with um, a, a woman who was uh, one of the uh, key people there. And uh, in the end, it, it kind of all fell apart. And there was, you know, some frankly bad faith negotiations that took place, um, not on the part of CNBC management and not on, you know, Wall Street Journal folks. You know, this person got fired and a whole bunch of other stuff, as did I, <laughs> uh, you know, me and 200 other people. But, but I'm saying all that to say that what I negotiated was when, when we got to an impasse and she told me, this is as high as I can possibly go. I said, okay, I'd be willing to accept that salary if I get that salary and I'm able to work four days a week instead of five days a week. (laughs) And having that flexible schedule was beneficial to me. It basically meant I was working 80% of the time instead of 100% of the time, but I still got the same level of pay. And I used that extra Friday off each week to write my first book, Investing Success. So you have to be able to quantify, and you can do it through a variety of means, but you should know for something like that, a flexible work schedule, what would it be worth to you? Only you can answer that question. You don't need to go on a website or to um, you know, look up something on Google or whatever. Um, you know what that is sort of worth to you from a quality of life standpoint or from an aspirational standpoint if it frees you up to do something else, right? I have a question, Lynette. Mm-hmm. So this is, and you talked about asking for a semi-part-time schedule, a day off a week to work on your book. Do you yep. feel like that is maybe treated differently than one? So, for example, let's say a new mother may not get very much maternity leave um, at her office. Do you think it's looked at differently if, 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 a, if a worker or woman would want to take off or ask for a part-time schedule to spend time with um, her newborn or with her, her child? And do you suggest that, you know, new moms ask for that, especially if they don't get a very generous, which many, many women don't get a very generous um, maternity leave schedule? The reality is there, there are gender biases in the workforce. And yes, I, you know, I would be uh, um, less than honest if I said that I didn't think many employers, frankly, um, dependent upon the industry, uh, dependent upon the, the um, line of work that the woman was doing. If I didn't say that many employers would look kind of askance at that or see that in potentially a negative light. You have to think about it in a bigger context, however, because not everybody, of course, you know, many of us are going to have kids and I've had three kids and um, and many people will go through a phase where you're out of the workforce for X amount of time. Again, I'll tell you what I negotiated during my um, uh, maternity leave and elsewhere. It was it was great. I got an office in, built in my house twice, not once, but twice when I had my uh, two kids when I was in corporate America. So it actually worked out for me. But some employers will look at what is the reason that you're asking for a flexible schedule. For example, if you want to do a sabbatical, if you want to take time off to Um, to travel or do research, if you want to go do a a graduate program or take part-time for school, if you want to write a book, 
if you want to do something quote unquote professional or something that's along the line of career or perhaps academic development, chances are they're going to look at that in a certain light, which is going to likely be viewed differently than taking care of your personal needs, you know, tending to your family, your kid, that kind of thing. Now, you and I, we all know that a woman or a man who is not um, distracted at work, who feels focused and who has flex time, et cetera, is probably going to be actually a better employee, right? Because they're going to be less stressed about it. They're going to have more work-life balance and they won't have the same stress around those issues. But, you know, think about a woman who's, you know, on the um, sort of on the career track to become a partner in a law firm, et cetera. Sure, I can see her being, you know, put on, quote unquote, the mommy track and not being uh, viewed as as viable a candidate for promotion, et cetera. If she flat out said, listen, I want to take time off because I want to go you know, with my kids. Um, I think a better strategy is to um, come at an employer by explaining how a flex schedule or a co-working schedule with you and another person who might be, you know, the two of you might each do 20 hours a week or something to that effect, how that would benefit the employer, period, end of story. Again, my initial advice is that people go to employers with the wrong approach or with the wrong messaging. So that sounds like a personal need to me. You know, I have a baby and I want to spend extra quote unquote time with my baby. I took this six weeks maternity, three weeks, eight weeks, whatever it was you took. Oh, but now I want to spend extra quote unquote time with the baby. That's not the right approach because again, that's arguing from a standpoint of need. Um, or sometimes people argue from a point of greed even, and not from a position of strength. If you can show your employer, if you can demonstrate to them how you are going to be just as productive during your 20 to 25 hours, or how you will, um, be um, still effective in your job or how you will actually impact their bottom line, whether that's revenues or profits or um, ability to engage with and retain clients, whether it's achieving some cost savings or efficiencies, whether it's in the operation side, whatever. And you can and should be able to demonstrate that. So part of what I like to tell people about is we've all heard this expression about, oh, you know, know your worth, you know, and all of that. Mm -hmm. Well, it's not important to just know your worth. It's important to show your worth, to demonstrate, to literally give them a bottom line, give them some numbers, because that's what employers understand. They understand, oh, she will still have X number of customers served. She will be just as effective on the sales or distribution or the marketing side or, you know, um, her efforts will help us to curb these legal costs or, you know, that kind of thing. You have to be able to document and show to an employer how it is that you're still helping the bottom line and indeed improving it. That's great advice. Tip, do you have a question? Oh, yeah. I was like, wait, I didn't want to do the double dutch. You know, you're like, wait, 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 wait. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, okay. So I'm going to ask for the entrepreneur side because, you know, I know that you've answered some great um, questions for when you have a job. So say you're an entrepreneur and I, you know, I've, I know I've asked you this personally, you've guided me um, so well. Um, when you're negotiating, you know, like a speaking engagement or a contract or, and 
you're not quite sure because, you know, a speaking engagement can run anywhere from you get $500. Some people get $50,000. And how do you know, you know, what your cutoff is? Like, you know, well, I'm at a point now, I'm not going to take less than this, but I probably should not expect $50,000. Like how, how do you navigate, you know, so this is someone who's not brand new to speaking, but they're also not a super seasoned veteran. Most people fall somewhere in the middle. How do you start to decide, you know, like, you know, how much is, how much to expect and when, cause there's been times when people have said yes so quickly and I'm like, oh man, (laughs) (laughs) and I find out later, you know, thousands of dollars more. And I'm like, how was I supposed to know that? You know? So how do you figure that out? So, so great question, Tiffany. I think the way that I've navigated this challenge over the course of my career and especially the last 15 years as an entrepreneur is I set my rates accordingly first and foremost, based on the value that I bring to an organization and what I would be happy to be paid to get for a speaking engagement or for other um, types of client work that I do. So for me, um, the first question is one of um, value. The second thing is around benchmarking. So yes, I mean, you do want to have competitive pricing, right? So that means that you do have to kind of know the going range. And and as you said, somebody might be starting out, they might be like, great, if I get $500, $1,000 for a speaking gig, I'm great, I'm good, I'm real happy with that. In my case, um, I think a third point of reference is instructive. It's definitely helped me And that's to talk about this stuff. That's to be candid and honest. So for example, I pride myself on pricing integrity and that's what I call it in the sense that any client who calls me up, they're going to get the same price. It can be Walmart or Prudential or, you know, Capital One or anybody else I'm going to tell, or it can be, um, um, Joe's auto body down the street or it can be a a, a local nonprofit or a national nonprofit or a regional. I'm going to tell them all the same price. Now, do I have pricing flexibility? Yes. Will I be willing to negotiate? Absolutely. But in general, for me, I set my prices according to the value where I think I am in the competitive landscape. And the fact that I do want to speak, I want to be active and out there speaking. And I, I like to be out there active speaking and based on, me sort of knowing kind of, you know, going rates. So I'm very upfront in telling um, companies and even my peers like, like you guys, here's my rate. My, and this is not a hypothetical. This is the truth. My rate is $12,500 for a, a corporate speaking engagement. And my clients know that they have me. So if they want me to do a keynote address or a workshop or a seminar, I don't parachute in and out. I try to stay and be social and sign books and do meet and greets and, you know, that kind of thing. For nonprofits, I discount my pricing by 50%. So my price to nonprofits is $62.50. I've priced it that way, knowing that many nonprofits, frankly, will not have the budget. However, they will have sponsorship, a corporate backer. Or I will have a corporate sponsor that's willing to come to the table. Um, and I also know that there's flexibility, which is one of the great things as an entrepreneur, you can package certain things. So somebody might say, okay, but if we bought books also, would you be willing to come down a little on your speaking fees? Yes, absolutely, I will. 
If it's a local engagement, um, would I accept less as opposed to me going and flying, you know, and taking two days away? Yes, I will. So we, we definitely indicate flexibility in our pricing. But I'll tell you, I'll give you a case in point. Um, Toyota, for example. So um, I, I've done some work um, with Toyota and um, I, uh, they support a number of nonprofit efforts. So I did some work with them about a month or, a month or two ago with a nonprofit. Um, I said, Toyota itself was the entity that came to me and, I, and they said, oh, we're sponsoring this nonprofit. And I said, I tell you what, um, I know you're supporting this nonprofit. I typically charge 12.5 for corporate speaking engagements. I know you're doing this for the nonprofit. I'm gonna charge you my nonprofit rate, 62.50. They said, no problem. They paid the 62.50, great client. And you know, it was, it was great. They came back to me recently and they said, we have something else we wanna do in October. Um, and here's the, here's the event. And at the event, um, it, it is something out of state, you know, here's the event and uh, we want you to do two workshops and, um, and we want you to do this and that, right? So I said, not a problem. Um, it is something that they're sponsoring also for a national, a major nonprofit. Um, I quoted them my normal, I said, I can give you this. I can, um, I can do the two workshops for this day. I'll be out of state and you cover the travel and all of that. Um, and they also asked about books because one of the presentations I'm doing is for adults and another one is for children. So we gave them just a straight quote. We said here, the rate is 12 five and here for these books, here's another price. And it was like, I don't know, $2,500 for books for here and another $2,500 or so for books for the, for the kids books. And they just said, yes. So now, was I, did I say, oh, darn, I should have asked for more? No, I was extremely happy to, you know, to lock that in. And I, I'm, I'm very happy with that pricing. I'll, I'll do that all day long, you know. I'll be on the road once a week, you know. But um, so, so for me, um, I also know that um, companies appreciate when you not only deliver value, but when you are sensitive to their budget, but at the same time, you're giving them so much out, you know, that they, they probably wouldn't get elsewhere. So um, for, for me as an entrepreneur, almost all of my clients are long term clients. They I mean, they come back again and again and again, especially and this. Prop, this this may surprise you, Tiff, mm -hmm. especially when I say no. Wow. OK. So, so part of the, the issue for, for us as entrepreneurs, we think that, and a no isn't, uh, for me, a no might be, um, it could be for a whole host of reasons. Sometimes it could be because there's a conflict of interest. Uh, I have a, another client in the space or category. Sometimes it could be, it's not exactly the right fit. Sometimes it could be a timing question. Sometimes I could be booked already traveling. Obviously on occasion, we have a difference of opinion on money. And um, I'm saying, you know, this is the price that I'm, I'm looking for. And they're saying, oh, here's where we are. And if we can't have a meeting as a mine or some sort of, you know, in the middle, it's like no harm, no foul. Um, you know, we'll get together when the time is right. And, you know, honestly, Earl and I, we have a we have an internal a saying. We say pay now or pay later. <laughs> Either way, you're going to pay, really, right? <laughs> I mean, and honestly, I almost every single client comes back. 
So I, you know, you don't burn bridges. You don't, you know, pull a diva routine and go off or anything like that, obviously. But it, it's, it's, it, you know, sometimes it's, it's not the right timing or they don't have it in the budget. And if, and if you say, I can't really see my way clear to perform these services or to do that for X budget, if it's, you know, beneath a number that's acceptable to you, then I don't think you should do it because there's a huge opportunity cost. There's always opportunity cost. That deal that you say yes to, you know, for half your rate or whatever the, whatever, you know, rate that would have been satisfactory to you, that's when you're going to get another client calling for something that same time. <laughs> and you're going to be like, oh, darn, you know, and obviously you never want to break a, an engagement if you, you know, kind of sign on the dotted line there. So I don't know. I hope that helps somewhat, though, to think about um, those for um, who are entrepreneurs who are um are looking at, you know, ways to, to negotiate. Again, I always negotiate from a position of strength and I, I, and it's not a take it or leave it style. It's not that, that's not what I mean by position of strength. I mean, with a documented proven track record. Okay. I mean, by showing my clients, um, here, this is what you can expect if you work with me. So, you know, we, we have everything from case studies, literally that we show and they're like, Oh wow. You know? So they're like, you can do this with us. Yes. <laughs> so it's almost like pre-packaged for them to give them a heightened sense of, um, security and a, a knowledge around what to expect, because I really, I like to manage expectations properly. And then I like to exceed those expectations. So that's whether I'm doing a speaking engagement or spokesperson work, or I'm writing content or doing some videos for somebody or whatever. Mm-hmm. No, thank you for that. Because honestly, it, it provides a lot. Well, you always provide me with a lot of clarity when it comes to, you know, what to ask for and, you know, what what I deserve. It's hard sometimes because you don't even know. Sometimes I don't even know what I deserve, you know. And sometimes I, I feel like I overshoot. And then sometimes I know I undershoot. You're like, where do I land? And it, it'll be crazy because, you know, someone will come to me one one day and say, hey, I've got $500 honorarium. And I'm like, what? And then the next day, a client will say, I have $10,000 for you. So it's right. just weird. You're like, why am I still getting offers of 500? And not that say 10,000 happens often, but when it does, you're like, is, is this where I should be now? So it's definitely, for entrepreneurs, it's definitely not an easy road. Can I tell you one other thing, Tiffany? And I'm, mm-hmm. I'm, I, I kid you not. Uh, you know, I give everybody the same advice, and you know, people take it for what it's worth, or use it and don't use it, whichever. I can tell you beyond a shadow of a doubt. Um, it's almost like consider it like consider this my boyfriend rule, okay? Okay. <laughs> um, how you allow yourself to be treated is exactly how you'll get treated. Okay. So if you with corporate clients, if you sort of say, this is my price, this is my expectation, and, and, and you kind of stand firm on your pricing. Not to say that you won't ever be flexible on your pricing, but if you know for sure, I'm not just I'm just not doing no $500 speaking gigs. And for me, I know I'm not. I'm, I'm not going to do no $500 speaking gigs. I can mm-hmm. say that unequivocally. Um, it's going to take a couple thousand dollars to get me out the door, period. Okay. However, I what, but what I will do is I will try to um, over deliver or be flexible in for, for, for some things. Um, especially if I say, huh, I see some great opportunity here. I see, um, some, uh, potential upsells or some, 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 you know, some other ways to, to kind of make this work. 
Um, I had a, a, a nonprofit client for, for discretion for the, for the client. I'm not, I won't re- reveal who the client is, um, but for, for this purpose, but uh, a nonprofit client recently, I went to New York, which is, you know, 40 minute drive. I just, you know, left my house in New, <laughs> New Jersey to New York. Um, it was, it's a nonprofit. I, uh, uh, I was paid $4,000 to do, uh, basically an employee event and, um, great organization. And, um, they've already said, okay, when can we have you back? <laughs> you know? And, um, because it's a, a national organization and they have interest in other things, digital financial education for their employees, I saw a bigger opportunity there. So again, sometimes you get, you know, you might be a little more flexible to think about you. You do want to think about long term. Um, so that that matters a lot, too, I think. Um, but for the most part, if you just have sort of a rate sheet or if you have a set price and you say, here, here's the price, <laughs> you know, um, what happens is the people who can't who can't play in your sphere, mm-hmm. the, who aren't ready and who don't have the budget, they go away. And believe it or not, word gets around. And that's a good thing. That's a, you want word to get around. Um, so in the um, African-American community, in the nonprofit space, in the college uh, market, in the government market, in different arenas, in some women-owned um, sort of spaces, um, for a time, you know, some people were like, oh, you know, don't reach out to Lynette because, you know, she might be X price. <laughs> and it's not that I'm going to say no, like, no, I'm, you know, oh, you're beneath me. I can't come on and do something with you. Absolutely not. Um, it's the opposite. It's me saying, let's make this a bang up, you know, uh, presentation and event for your constituents, your employees, your customers, your prospects, whatever. Right. And here are my ideas. This is what I can bring to the table. And here's the price for that. This is what this is going to get you. Um, sometimes they were like, great, let's do it. You know, sometimes they say, oh, this is what our budget can accommodate. And we negotiate a little bit and it you know, works out. Other times it's like, nope, we just don't have that at all. And if it's if it's a platform or an organization that we think, huh, we could develop something here. I may go to one of my corporate partners or to another third party um, to try to make a three-way deal happen. And those are also um, lucrative and creative opportunities. So it, it doesn't have to be a no, a hard no. I always say that a no is sort of just not yet, <laughs> especially okay. when, you're, when you're negotiating. Um, but, you know, kind of setting a, a, a benchmark or like a, just an absolute minimum, like really I'm not coming out the door for this. I'm just going to, you know, and just knowing at least internally what that number is for you, it okay. really is important because you can just put all the other stuff. You can just like let that stuff go away or redirect it or, or help educate your clients too, to say, you know, here's where my pricing is X. Because I, I, I feel like, like I know in the industry for personal finance experts, what I do, like I know that, say, a Gene Chatsky is going to charge more than me. I know a Susie Orman definitely is going to charge more than me. So, and, but then I know that my pricing is going to be more than many, many, many other people who aren't at, you know, at their, their level, right? Um, but for me, 12.5 is perfectly comfortable. I'm just, you know, it's, uh, 
I don't feel that it's overpriced or underpriced. I feel that it's, it's, it's right about right for me. I think that is such a great piece of advice for anyone, whether you're an entrepreneur or negotiating a salary in the corporate world, because I, I have certainly felt like people walk into a negotiation and have no idea what even to ask for. They just feel like, I got to negotiate and I want a lot of money, but I don't know what the number is. And if mm-hmm. you, you have to, I mean, it's as simple as like, what does it cost you to live and what will it cost you to be, you know, happy? And um, I think you should have that number in mind when you go in. Um, and then either way, when you, you know, you walk out, you at least know that you went in educated and you went in having a number and knowing what you want and you know when to be happy and when not to be happy with an offer. And honestly, when it comes to negotiating, again, one of my other principal lessons is bring your A game. You absolutely cannot bring your A game. You can't be your best. You aren't being your best if you don't have a number in mind when you're going to an employer because frankly, it's telling me that you've been lazy, you've lacked discipline, or you've lacked initiative because you haven't done the bare basics in terms of research. There is absolutely no reason with all of the information um, and knowledge that's at our fingertips today for you to go into a negotiation and say, well, I don't even know, like, how much is this job paying? Or, you know, what's the the person who's already in the job or the predecessor in this position, how much do they get paid or others in the industry? What do they get paid? There's just way too many sources of information for you to get that, you know, that data. You can go to Glassdoor, you can go to salary.com, obviously Indeed, you can use PayScale and you can find out even the government, the Bureau of Labor Statistics. Okay. Um, You can find out based on all kinds of information literally down to a specific company, what pay scales are in a company based on title and industry, uh, based on years of experience. Um, You can always find out about um, a given range for salary for a specific position. And you really should go into the door of a negotiation, whether you're trying to get hired or even get promoted on a job, you should absolutely know that information. If you don't, it's telling me you haven't brought your A game. You haven't done enough homework yet. Um, even just talking to you know, HR managers, employees, and other colleagues, even if not at that specific company, but at other competitors who are in the same job and, and getting a feel for salary. You, you can and should do that. Okay, guys. So as you know, you can, anytime you want, ask us all of your money and career questions. And thank you to those who have been emailing us. Um, if you want to share a question with us or you have a question, um, head to brownambitionpodcast.com and click on the Ask Us Anything tab or you can go directly to the source and email us at brownambitionpodcast at gmail.com. So today we have a question specifically for our illustrious guest, Miss Lynette. Lynette, you still there? I am indeed. You ready? Okay. Because <laughs> this one is exactly right up your alley. Um, so as we know, it's a graduation season um, is still underway, I feel like, in a, in a lot of the country. People are graduating and going to college, and a lot of parents are like, oh, my God, what? do I do? Um, college costs have never been higher. Um, there's not much you can do. Um, you know, honestly, if 
well, let me start this over because this question I forgot is about a mom of a one-year-old. <laughs> that's okay i was like i was about to say there's nothing well you, you can segue there's not much you could do if your teen is like 17 but, but i was thinking i'm sure lynette has some tips for them <laughs> i got them i know i'm not trying to undercut your abilities here all right that's let me start over so as you know, it is college uh, graduation season, and there's a lot of new parents out there who have young kids and are worried and stressed out, looking at the cost of college going higher and higher every year. Um, and so today's question is right up Miss Lynette's alley. You have how many books on, on um, higher education costs? Three. Three. No <laughs> Actually, four, sort of, because uh, another one was like a spinoff, a little thin book, but but. College Secrets, College Secrets for Teens, and Zero Debt for College Grads. And then I have a spinoff called Free um, Pre-College Programs. So, And by the way, hey, your hey, daughter, hey. You, you have two kids now in college. And your first, your daughter went to school with how much, like 200000 or plus in, in scholarships? Or was it even more than that? So how much time do we have? Yeah, oh, okay. <laughs> a lot. A lot of money, you guys. She knows what she's talking about. So let's oh, get good, to this. Good, good. Let's get to this question. Actually, I can share my interview I did with Lynette at Yahoo. Um, oh, good. What was it one or two years ago? I can't remember. Yeah. Which... I really want to tell your audience, though, about that whole thing. And just so let me answer your question. And then if we have time, you let me know. And then I'll share some because I actually have learned more since in the two years that my daughter's been in college. So go ahead, ask okay. your question. <laughs> awesome. This shouldn't take too long, but this is a question I feel like um, will strike a chord with a lot of young parents out there. It's from listener Megan. She says, I'm a single mom of a one-year-old and I'm trying to get financially literate so I can provide for her and prepare for retirement. One of my greatest concerns is saving for her college education. Can you discuss ways to start early in saving for college? I've heard of 529 college planning um, investments, and I'm not sure whether it's worth it. I haven't met anyone who's done it or is doing it and has found it worth it. I'd greatly appreciate any insight you can shed on this topic. Okay, so first of all, hello, she's met me now <laughs> because I've done it. Um, 529 plans for all three of my kids, and uh, they work they're a fabulous way to save for college. And the gist of it is that a 529 plan is a state-sponsored college savings plan. It is something that is portable, meaning your kid can use it across, you know, any accredited uh, school, any higher education institution in the country. Um, it's transferable. So let's say, you know, this um, listener only has a, a one-year-old right now, but let's say her one-year-old grows up and says, ah, mom, I changed my mind. I don't want to go to college. Um, then, but she had another baby down the road. If she had funds in the first child's name for the benefit of that child, then the money could be transferred to the other child. The parent herself could even use the funds in a 529 plan and go back to school and use it for higher education expenses. And um, it's actually advantageous in the financial aid process. So because a 529 plan is for the benefit of the student, the money is still retained from a financial aid standpoint in the donor's name. In other words, it's considered an asset of the parent. It's not considered a child's asset. So that's actually helpful when it comes time to getting uh, financial aid and free money for college, 
because schools uh, and the way the whole FAFSA system works, the FAFSA being the free application for federal student aid, once you fill that out, they determine what's your EFC or your expected family contribution. And in a nutshell, any assets in the student's name, the student is expected to contribute roughly 20% of that of those assets. So let's say there was just to use a round number, a thousand dollars in a 529 plan. Um, that's considered something that's in the parent's name, and only five percent of that is expected to be contributed overall when they're looking at the parent's assets in, in, in their totality. So if the student had, say, $1,000 in his or her name, just in a checking account or in a savings account, $200 out of that would be deemed necessary to be turned over as part of the expected family contribution. So long story short, 529 plans are great. They work very well, especially if you have a young child and you're um, gearing up to start saving. You can save a little bit at a time and it really can grow over time. Um, there's a website that's um, very helpful as well. It's called savingforcollege.com. Uh, savingforcollege.com. It's run by a guy named Joe Hurley, one of the premier uh, 529 uh, experts in the country. It'll teach you everything you want to know about 529 plans, and you can get them in any state. And some of them, some states even offer tax advantages uh, for opening a 529 plan. So when you had your three plans for your kids, did you have, did they each have their own, or did you just open one and then you sort of like let the water fall over um, after each kid went to school? They each have their own 529 plan. And you do have to designate who the plan, who's the beneficiary in effect, who the, who the, account is for the benefit of. Um, for in, in my case, for example, my kids had a New York plan and um, it's not the case. I've never lived in New York. I'm not a resident of New York. Um, at the time, we just picked the New York plan based on a host of factors that we saw at the, at the time. Um, but you don't have to live in a specific state. Like you can get the Utah plan or the Minnesota plan or the Florida plan. Um, each state plan is managed by uh, a fund manager, typically a company um, that sort of oversees the assets and the investment process and directs how the monies that are put into a 529 plan, how they're directed. Um, but you do have choice and flexibility about that, about which plan you can go with. And that's why I referenced that site, uh, Saving for College, because they actually show you, they give you performance rankings for different states and, and whatnot. Okay, so we, I, I do want to get into your story because it's so extraordinary and yes. I'm excited to hear that you know even more about it than you did two years ago. Um, okay, so that's why I asked, how much time do you have? <laughs> uh, so tell me, start off with your daughter and then I know you have a son who re just started college, right? Um, or is going to be starting college and, and talk about how you sent your daughter to school with far more money than was necessary uh, to, to cover the cost of college. Okay, so so the reason I ask you how much time do you have is I, I like to tell these stories in their entirety and I like to revisit them because frankly, there's always good, bad and ugly and excellent, you know, in any sort of financial decision or any kind of process like this. And paying for college obviously is a process. So here's my family's story to date. So my daughter Aziza is 19 years old. 
She just finished her second year at the University of Texas at Austin. My son is 17. He's going into his senior year of high school. So he has one more year and then he'll be going off to college. I have a third child, Alexis, my 11-year-old. My but Aziza, long story short, was one of those just outstanding over-the-top kids. She was a National Merit Scholar. Um, she speaks French. She was the president of the French club in high school. She founded a multicultural club. She had like a 2230 SAT score. She, you know, she was an A student. She did all these amazing things, volunteer work, drama girl, theater club, blah, blah, blah. So she was one of those off the charts kids. Um, she was sought after. She got accepted to a lot of great schools and she won a boatload of merit-based scholarships, not need-based scholarships. There's two types of scholarships you can get, need-based based on your family's income and assets and merit-based, which is based on the student's accomplishments in some ways, typically academic, athletic, artistic, or social engagement like volunteer work, community service, et cetera, okay? So my daughter had a lot of academic accomplishments and artistic accomplishments. She won really in total over $750,000 worth of uh, scholarships. Whoa. Yeah. So now you have to understand this was from the schools that she, the, the vast majority of the aid that she was offered was through the colleges and universities themselves. And so that's one of the things that I teach people is if you're looking to get scholarship money, the biggest dollars come not from private sources, um, third party sources. You could, of course, win a Gates scholarship, a Coca-Cola scholarship, et cetera. Um, very competitive, obviously, for those scholarships. But the schools themselves, colleges and universities themselves are the biggest source of money directly to um, for, for, for merit based aid. OK, so she got, for example, at NYU, she won the MLK scholarship. You know, they were giving her fifty thousand dollars a year. At my alma mater at USC in Los Angeles, she won a presidential scholarship, and that was going to be like $27,000 um, a year. Um, she got accepted to Fordham. She won a National Merit Scholarship there, $48,000 a year, blah, 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 on and on. Ultimately, she turned those down, of course, and she went to UT Austin. She got accepted into their business honors program, and she won about uh, $40,000 roughly worth of, of, of scholarship aid to pretty much cover most of her um, college costs. We only had to cover like maybe $5,000, you know, some, some, you know, the books, you know, the travel back and forth, the, the, you know, some, a little bit of the housing, stuff like that. But she won a, a, a lot of scholarship money directly from the school itself, including a $10,000 a year scholarship from BHP, the business honors program. And the best thing was an out of state tuition waiver that she got, which was almost $30,000, um, as a result of winning that $10,000 scholarship. The two were tied together. Okay. okay, now let's fast forward. My child, my A student, my, my national merit winning child um, <laughs> had a horrible first semester. Aww. Yeah, so, um, you know, without, you know. We've all been telling, there. Telling, telling all up on her business. And she, <laughs> she, she doesn't mind, she, she yeah. really doesn't. Um, so, her scholarship was dependent upon her maintaining a 3.5 GPA or better. And okay. she did, and she did not. So her first semester was horrible. Her second semester, she bounced back. I was like, 
what has happened to you? You better get those grades up, you know? Mm-hmm. So, and, and she did, she, she, she recovered. And then her second year, which was, had just passed, she did well again, did great. Um, but bottom line, because she did not have at the end of her first year, overall, she did not have a 3.5 GPA. She lost her scholarship. Oh my goodness. Ouch. Yeah. Forever. She... Or could Forever, she... ever, ever. <laughs> I know, right? I'm like, what? Are you talking about probation or? Yeah, yeah. So, so she was on probation her after her first semester. She, then she was off after one semester, and she, okay. you know, like I said, she bounced back. And she was, she was fine. But, but that wasn't the issue. The issue was, sorry, girl. We said three point five or higher, and you don't have overall. She didn't have a three point five. So, um, even if she had not had a horrible, if she had had a three point four nine, pretty much, they would have been like, sorry, that to be three point five or better, you know. So. Um, so um, it's been a learning experience. It taught us a couple of things. One was about transition. Um, I don't know if I shared this with you before, and I, 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 I'm sure I didn't. Um, my daughter in her senior year of high school, a couple of months before graduation, she suffered sudden hearing loss in her right ear. Um, oh, I didn't know that. That impacted her, you know, a little bit her first semester on, in college. She was sick for three weeks, and, you know, she didn't tell me. And I was like, you didn't go to, like, the campus health she was like uh i didn't know to how to or what to do you know on her own the first time i think there was transition issues her going from you know um east coast to the south basically texas that transition being raised in a in a bubble admittedly you know in the suburbs here mountainside new jersey population mm-hmm. eight eight thousand and then going on a campus with fifty thousand students alone on the campus you know yeah. so i think there was a lot of transition and it was just a little overwhelming for her everything so um but got back you know right back up on the horse i told her don't prove it to me prove it to yourself go back up there and show me what you can do show yourself even more importantly and she did and so so i'm fast forwarding to say as her parents, we did something that I'm sure some parents would be like, what? We actually doubled down on Aziza. We put a game plan together and I said, if, if you need any tutoring, you're gonna be talking to the, your academic advisor and your counselors, you're gonna do this, this, that. She did everything I asked her to do. Her grades went back up, she got A's, A's and B's. And she, and there's and it no, no, no problems. However, because we had a financial situation now that we had to, to say, okay, what are we going to do here? School there uh, is about $55,000 a year, you know, all in tuition fees, you know, room and board as an out of state student. So cutting to the chase, this is what we did. We bought her a condo. Now, some people would be like, what? (laughs) What? I'm trying to follow, but uh, I'm hanging in there. Okay. (laughs) So the short um, explanation is that her having a condo, ownership of a condo for one year establishes Texas residency for her. Oh. So instead of us having, you know, a thirty-eight or $40,000 a year tuition bill, she gets now, she'll be getting in this, 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 in her junior year, in-state tuition of about $11,000. Wow. And the, and the housing side is covered because we put down, you know, 21,000 or so 25,000 for to buy the place for her. She has two roommates. The roommates pay $1400 a month. The mortgage is $1400 a month. So so there's no net sort of out of pocket cost for us with that and her housing is covered with that. So it actually 
you know, thank you, Jesus, <laughs> it worked out. Um, but uh, that's actually how we dealt with it. And, you know, now she's getting back and she's applying for scholarships again. And, you know, part of the lesson is if you lose a scholarship, you know, mercifully for her, she had parents who had the financial wherewithal to, to backstop her. Um, mm -hmm. Because, you know, I can tell you, you know, her father, my ex, was like, oh, well, I guess you got to come back home. And I was like, uh, no, <laughs> no, no. Wait, no, no, so, no. For, but she still had to pay for out-of-state tuition, right, for that for, yeah. semester? For so year. did you guys had, finance that with student loans or? We had to pay. We, we, had, to, we had to just pay it. <laughs> we had to pay. Yeah, so, um, yeah. You know, that's, but, something similar you know. happened to my little brother. My little brother. Um, and UT is a state school, right? Yep. So their merit-based aid comes out of state funding, correct? Or is it like a private endowment? Um, no, it's a public school. So they're, they do have some scholarships that they award through right. private donors that give them, you know, give students their scholarships. But the, if you're a resident, that's coming through the, if you get um, state aid, that's through the state of Texas. Right. One thing that happened to my brother as far as losing his scholarship, he had a we went to the University of Georgia State, big state school, and yep. he had a merit based aid. But it, they since the recession, when college funding has sort of dried up in a lot of ways in state funded schools, because states have been, you know, in some Absolutely. cases divesting, there's less yep. money to go around. So the same scholarship that I got for maintaining a 3.2, I think, GPA, he had to maintain like a 3.7 or something, and he wow. lost it. And, and can I tell you something, you guys? I'm telling you, this is, I, I hate to say it this way. I won't call it a racket, <laughs> but um, I will say that colleges and universities across the country employ specialists and professionals that are called enrollment managers or yield managers. They actually know that a, a pretty high percentage of students are simply not going to maintain those grades thus the the high performance bar so um it's preparing me with my son because i know that based on our family's income and assets it's not likely that we will qualify for need-based aid i will still apply i will still go through the fafsa process just like i did with aziza but when i think about scholarship opportunities and any potential free money for college for him for my son I'm looking at merit aid and institutions that do grant merit aid or schools that have very, very strong need-based aid. And those are mostly the Ivy's top, you know, sort of elite private schools and those with strong uh, endowments. But these schools, no, they absolutely, I, 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 believe me, when I, when I went through this experience with Aziza, I did an exhaustive amount of research and I was like, oh, this is not actually uncommon. Can I tell you something? that I, one, one, one factoid that says it, you know, clearer than anything else that I came across. The average high school student suffers a 0.5 drop in their GPA when they go from senior year of high school, 12th grade that is, to their freshman year in college. So in other words, the student who had a 3.85, let's say, GPA, on average, that student will have a 3.35 or a 0 0.5 drop in their GPA. That's just nationwide the average. Okay. 
So you might be like, oh, my student, my child is so smart and bright and they'll be great. They'll be fine. Yep. They're going to be able to maintain. I was like 3.5. Oh, Aziza's got this. No problem. <laughs> you know? And so, but obviously it's next level. It's, it's a higher tier of performance that's required of the students, not to mention, it's not even so much the, the academics and the grades that are, you know, oh, this is so hard. It's more about all of the stuff that they have to deal with being on their own for the first yeah. time. The transition for many students, financial definitely plays a role for a lot of students if they're stressed or if they're worried about it. My daughter, she wasn't stressed or worried about money at all. She didn't, it wasn't that kind of thing. But everything else in her life she had to give attention and focus to, um, I think, was, um, uh, you know, uh, sort of a factor for her. But these schools absolutely know. So now I know with my son, oh, you can believe I'm going to negotiate the other way when they like say it. When they say, um, oh, a 3.5, he hears his scholarship, blah, blah, blah. It's dependent on him having a 3.5. I'm be like, mm-mm. He, he'll come to your school. How about a 3.0? How about a, <laughs> you know. I like that. I'm serious. I'm, I'm absolutely going to negotiate. And I've talked to parents since who have, in fact, negotiated and, and gotten that bar down a little bit. Or I've even talked to parents who said that they had a, a, a provision as long as the student is making, quote, satisfactory academic progress. So you can read that. It means no GPA requirement as long as they got a 2.0 or better, basically, okay. um, at the end of a given year, as long as at the end of a year, in case they have a little blip one semester. So, you know, I think back to my college days, my freshman year, I was fine. It wasn't then, but it was either the end of my sophomore year. I did some kookiness and, you know, just running wild. <laughs> and I was like, ooh, let me get it together here before I get kicked out of this school. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so, junior year. You, that was yours? Me. Junior, yeah, that was yeah, me yeah, having yeah. breakdowns in the parking deck yeah. <laughs> after Mine the career fair. <laughs> Mine was freshman year. My, my father brought my behind right back home because I was not used to, because I was raised in a really strict household. Mm-hmm. And so living on campus was like, what? <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> Overstimulation. <laughs> over what? I, and you know, the thing is, I was not really wild. It was just like, I could stay up late because my dad... Exactly. Um, especially my dad was the type to be like, where are you going? Put the name on the refrigerator. I'm going to call the parent ahead of time. I'm going to drop you off. I'll drive you to the movie. So I was not used to any freedom. Yeah. And so like, you know, and so it just, I, it was just too much. And I had got, I had always gotten really good grades and I think I got my first D and he could not believe I had gotten a D. I and know. Like, you don't, you're not about this life. <laughs> yeah. He's like, yeah, no. Well, this is funny. When my daughter was, I, I can't remember if it was her 16th birthday it's possible it could have been her 15th birthday. Now, again, remind you, I live in a very tiny little town, 8,000 population. Suburbia is, you know, basically about, it's 97% white. It has, you know, some diversity, African-American, Asian, you know, um, et cetera. And um, it's a small place that is also a safe place. Um, so when my daughter turned, <laughs> I think it was when she was 16, I said, oh, what would you like for your birthday, Aziza? She said, oh, I'm going to give it some thought. And then she came back to me and she said, okay, mommy, I thought about it. And I said, great. What, what would you like? She said, mm, just a little freedom. <laughs> <laughs> and, I said, and I was like, well, freedom, freedom to do what? <laughs> she said, um, just like to walk around the block by myself. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then I was like, oh my God, Lynette, you now. Girl, I used to be running the streets in L.A., okay? We used to run outside and come in when the lights came on, okay? I mean, it's a whole different ballgame. Even though 
you know, my child is in a very safe environment here. The bubble that we're in is crazy. So I think that she had the same experience, Tiffany, that you did, which is like, oh, my God, I'm free. Nobody tells me what to do. And nobody's on me, making me go to bed at a certain time, double checking my homework. Do You know, it was just transition to, to, yeah. to young adulthood. Lynette, thank you so, so much. Tell the people where they can find you and find all your great work. Sure. Um, they can catch me on my free financial advice blog, askthemoneycoach.com, or they can take a course with me and get uh, video training, one-on-one lessons <laughs> through my platform on moneycoachuniversity.com. Free and paid uh, offerings there. Awesome. Thank you, Lynette. You're always the best. Thank you, guys. The Bigger Pockets portfolio of podcasts are worthy of your investment. We're having a real conversation as real real estate investors. New episodes available every day. It's important to buy where it makes money and not necessarily where you want to travel to. Bigger Pockets on the market, rookie real estate or money podcast. The purpose of flipping is to create more cash so then you can reinvest into other types of properties. The Bigger Pockets podcast on YouTube or wherever you listen.